The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And today we continue to examine Paul's last instructions to the church at Thessalonica. Uh, those, this is the end of the letter, near to the end. These are not his last thoughts about the Thessalonian church. There is, of course, a second letter, and as soon as we're finished here, we will consider the information given in the second letter. But for sure, these are not his last thoughts about this church. We read in the first chapter, in verses 2 and 3, Paul said, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. I don't think that when Paul wrote that, he exaggerated when he said he always gave thanks for this church and he remembered them. I think that he was honest about it. These people were always in his prayers and they provided for him a a great example of faith, love, and hope that he could use in other churches that he ministered to. In the third chapter, we see that he was very anxious to uh, see them again, to learn how they were doing. He sent Timothy to check on them, and he was concerned about how their faith had developed. So he said, you're always in my prayers. And then in the end of the letter, he encouraged them to pray for him. And so I think we see there's this mutual affection between the missionary and the people. Now, our text today in chapter 5, beginning in verse 16 and going down to verse 22 are verses that will occupy us for quite some time as there are vital truths that are here for the spiritual welfare of the church and our worship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you look in your, in your Bibles at verse number 16, he says, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesying, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil. This is the 53rd week of our study, and I've stayed here because this letter is a comprehensive examination of what the church must do as we wait on Christ to return. Thoughts? of Christ's return. That ought to be in the heart of every Christian. That ought to really lift our thoughts, encourage us in our faith. And in these times when we often feel helpless and when the world is relentlessly against us, it's good for us as God's people to remember this life is not all there is for his people. Our hope is in Christ's return. We hope that he will come to make all things new. Our hope is that there will be a new heaven and a new earth where Jesus Christ will reign, will worship him in righteousness and holiness, will live with him and will be with him forever. But we also know that God intends that this life should be enriching. 
Though there is so much trouble in the world, God does want us to enjoy our lives and to always rejoice in the blessed hope, the promise that he made that he will come again. And uh, it's not possible to enjoy life unless we keep our minds focused on Jesus Christ. We can rejoice even in all of our struggles if that focus is right. And so we can be content even though there are so many methods of attack that the devil uses against us. Every day he tries to destroy our, our spiritual well-being. And we can enjoy this life because our God is greater than Satan. And he provides a way that we can escape all of Satan's snares. And so Paul most certainly acknowledges that it's possible. If you look in verse number 16, he wrote to persecuted believers and he said, Rejoice evermore. And that is somewhat perplexing to us because knowing their situation, we say, how can they rejoice? How can they rejoice in their persecutions? And how is it possible for us as Christians today to rejoice when we know the moment that we walk outside of this building, there's another trial to face? A few weeks ago, after a service, I walked out into the parking lot. And as I did, there was a fellow that was driving down the road, just passing by, saw us coming out of the church, and he shouted obscenities as we drove past. That's just a mild compared to what many go through, but it does represent what we experience when we're called by the name of Christ. This world does not like what we do. It doesn't like what we stand for. And when we put our finger firmly on the Bible and say, this is what I believe and this is what I will stand for, then you'd expect the world's not going to like it at all. And so we will face struggles in this world. Some of you face other trials. You'll go home and you'll find a stack of bills that you can't pay. We're not prosperity preachers, so I'm not going to guarantee you that Christianity will pay your bills. Some of you will go home to wives or husbands that are unbelievers. And some of you will go to work tomorrow where you've tried to live your Christian faith and you find that people are none too happy with the way that you live. They like to act like, like uh, animals sometimes, it seems, and they're not happy with your godly lifestyle. So how is it possible to always rejoice? And yet here we see in the scriptures there is the command. This is not the apostle's suggestion. In fact, the Apostle Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this is God's command. This is not just what the Apostle wishes for the church. And the key to understanding this command is to know what we are to rejoice in. What are we to think about that causes us to rejoice? And most certainly, those thoughts must be on the Lord. Paul gave a good summary of Christian thoughts in Philippians 4, verse 8. He said, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, think on these things. Or if there's any virtue, if there's any praise, he says, think on these things. Our rejoicing is in the Lord. As the psalmist wrote in Psalm 68, Blessed be the Lord who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation, Selah. So he doesn't just give us benefits, he loads us with benefits every day. And so we rejoice that he is with us, 
always and always we are in the providential care of our Lord and our Savior. So make sure that you understand what this command is about. He says rejoice always. He's not telling you to be happy. He's not saying be happy all the time. Because happiness is not, a, not a, an emotion that we can turn off and on at will. There are many things that make us unhappy. I think about my wife's illness. That makes me very unhappy. I, I sometimes think of what I deal with with church members. And I say that makes me very unhappy. But the command here is not to be happy all of the time. The command is to rejoice And we can always rejoice when our thoughts are on the marvelous work and the character of our Lord Christ. So how can you rejoice when you know that in all of your troubles, those of every kind, that God is in control? How can you rejoice? Well, you know that God is sovereign. You know that God handles everything. God is in control. And so we rejoice that our God is the true God. We know who we pray to. We know who we speak to. We know what he can do. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And so, it's best that we read verse number 16 in this way. Always rejoice in Christ. He is your Lord and your salvation. Well, these comments prepare us for a closer look at this passage. These are instructions for the church. It's not just an individual command. Paul didn't write this letter to an individual, it's to the church. And he expected this letter would be read in the body of believers. Now, in our previous messages, we've looked at the other parts here concerning this, and we've talked about leadership, how the church is to respond to leadership, and we've talked about how um, churches to, the church is to treat leaders, and the leaders are to treat the people of the church. We've talked about fellowship between believers, how we are to treat each other. So we're talking about relationships, and today our focus switches to a different relationship, and this is the undergirding of our relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a message about lordship and worship of Christ as his church. So our subject today is worship. Some have noted that these verses contain a prescription for worship. This is almost like looking in your church bulletin that shows an order of worship. I mean, you can think of rejoicing as praise. That's what we do when we gather to sing. In verse number 17, there's prayer and thankfulness in prayer. In verse number 20, there's prophesying, which in the context of this passage means to tell forth the word of God. And that's what we do in preaching. And so I would just ask you, doesn't that look like the left side of the inside of your bulletin? Where you find singing and you find prayer. There's a list of songs. There's a confessional and pastoral prayer. And then now we're listening to preaching. We're the doing the telling forth God's word. And I'm not going to go as far as to say is what, what Paul did here was to give us an order of service. And this is Paul's bulletin for the church. But I will say we can't go wrong if we use this prescription for worship. Now, we'll have more to say about other elements, but I want you to see in verse number 20, he says, don't despise prophesying. Or we would say, don't despise the preaching of God's word. And I do hope that preaching is not distasteful to you. I hope that when you came in this morning, that you were, you were anxiously looking forward to this as the main part of the service, 
where we hear God speak to us because this is the main part of our worship, the most important part. And in the next messages, I want to examine worship. Worship is the highest priority for the Christian. Private worship is great, but you're not the church in private. The church is the gathering of God's people. It's the assembly, which means that corporate worship is the highest priority. And so I'll say that if you haven't gone to church, you haven't worshipped with proper priorities. I mean, no matter how spiritual you think you are, you aren't if you're not in the body of believers regularly for worship. And I do mean this body if you're a member of this church, because this is church to you, not somebody else's church in Timbuktu. Uh, this morning before I, I came, I was listening for a few minutes to David Jeremiah. And he said something interesting. He was talking about church, and he said, when I was young, I had a drug problem. He said, I was drugged to church for every service. The, 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 uh, three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And I could, I could identify with that. His dad was a preacher, my dad was a preacher, and we went to church. We did not miss church. And there was this sense, there was this feeling, if you didn't go to church on, on any particular week, all the time, there's something seriously wrong. There's this big hole in your life if you're not in church. And so we didn't think about going to church on Sunday morning. We thought about going to church Sunday night. And we thought about being there Wednesday night. Whenever God's people met, we were going to be there. We were there for all the revival meetings, all the prayer meetings, everything that went on. We got drugged to church. And I'll tell you, I'm glad that my dad was like that. And I'm glad he instilled in me the importance of being in God's church. Because I know this is where we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing that we do. Now there's an old chorus that we used to sing that said, The reason I live is to worship you. We, we all sang that together. And I just have to ask the question, is that the reason that you live? Or do you have three, four, five other priorities that are ahead of worship? And I'm afraid there are many church members that do because from week to week, I just don't know if I'm going to see them. Now, it's a wonderful sentiment to sing it and to say it. I live to worship Christ. It's wonderful if you understand what worship is. But I'm afraid that most people don't. And most don't worship properly because they don't understand it. Worship is not a matter of style. Style is variable. Styles change. In the history of the church, styles have altered drastically. Now, the same elements are always there, the praise, the prayer, and the preaching, but the style is different. You remember last week I mentioned this, that none of us would be too happy if we were required to worship in the style of the 17th century. It really shouldn't affect us, but we all have to admit that it does. There, there's just something about the way that we do the worship that, that affects us very strongly. And so we know that it can't be the style, because if that style must be our style, then we've gone all of these years without worship. Rather, what we must understand is that worship is an attitude. And the attitude doesn't alter because worship is prescribed by the unchangeable God. So when we come here, we don't come to worship and please us. We're here to please Him. And I'm afraid that's often the rub because worship is too often designed for the congregation 
and the pleasure of the congregation rather than turning all of our attention on God. Now perhaps you remember these words that Jesus spoke to the woman at the well in John 4. He said, but the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I suppose that there are many of you when you came to church today, you had in your mind, I'm going to worship. Not just that you're going to church, because sometimes we do this. We substitute the word worship for church. That's what we mean. I'm going to worship today. We mean, well, we're going to church. Because we understand church is the place that we worship. So as believers in Christ, we automatically think worship. I'm going to church to worship. So worship is the spiritual composition of God's people. We're saved, and immediately when we were saved, our heart was set on rejoicing and worshiping God. I've never met anybody who got angry when God saved them. I never met anybody that was sour when they got saved. Oh, I've seen tears before, but not tears that are sorrowful. When you get saved, you rejoice because at that moment, your thoughts are on the wonderful change that's happened to you. Your heart is turned to Christ. And would to God that we would stay the way that we were on the day that we got saved, that our thoughts are always on Christ. If we live to worship, and if that is God's will concerning you, as verse number 18 says, then we would expect to find many examples in the Bible that people are in worship. If God created us for worship, then we should expect to see the creation in worship of God. And in fact, you know, the Bible does say, the heavens declare the glory of God. All the way back in the very beginning, Abel brought a sacrificial lamb in worship to the Lord God. Cain knew that he was supposed to worship too. But like many people today, he didn't understand what worship was and his worship was wrong. Man was made to worship and Cain didn't stumble upon that that concept by accident. No, God has put this into the heart of every person. It's ingrained in the human psyche. We are supposed to worship, but in order for us to worship God properly, the conscience must be trained towards God. It must be right. And so we see in Scripture, in only a few chapters from the acceptable worship of Abel, we find men building a tower of Babel. And there they worship false gods, not understanding what worship is. And then the right prescription for worship was given to Moses when he met with God on Mount Sinai. And he came down from that mountain with plans for a tabernacle. And that tabernacle, that tent of the congregation, was the place where Israel gathered in the center of their camp to worship God. That tabernacle was always in the center. And there was a cloud in the daytime and there was fire in the night that said, God is here. This is where you come. God's presence is here. Worship God. In the New Testament, in John 4, when Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, hundreds of years had passed. Then the true worship of God was perverted. Jesus met the woman at the well. And it wasn't only the ethnic differences between Samaritans and Jews that were bothersome. The big difference was worship. 
Worship separated Samaritans from the Jews. And so as Jesus addressed this woman, the question was worship. Is Samaritan worship right or is it wrong? You remember she asked the Lord that question. She said, we worship over here, the Jews worship over there. And I think in her question she's asking, which of those is right? Are the Jews right or are we right? And the same thing has to be asked to many Christians today who claim to worship God. Is their worship right or is it wrong? And I would submit to you that most of the time the worship is wrong. But worship is what we're supposed to do. And as I said, there appears to be a prescription for worship in this passage. And this prescription is praise, prayer, and preaching. And I'd like to call that the trilogy of worship. It begins with praise. So number one, you see the worship of praise. Verse number 16 says, rejoice evermore. Rejoicing is our praise. Well, before we get to the specifics of the individual elements, I want to generalize just a bit and talk to you about worship, what worship means. What is worship? Well, I think we're all agreed that worship concerns God. A simple definition that you've seen before in our studies of worship is that worship is honor and adoration directed to God. Worship is our response to lordship, the one who rules over us, the Lord. He is to be honored. And because of his supreme love for us, we are to adore him. We worship him, we honor him, we adore him. But if I ask most people, what is worship? They wouldn't define it this way. If I say, what is worship? They would say, oh, worship. In church, you mean, oh, worship is music. Worship is music. Worship is the music program of the church. And that worship must be pleasing to us. It must make us happy. And well, I would say, yes, music is a part of worship. And there's nothing wrong with our music being pleasant. The people that sing for us and play for us, whether it's the old guard like Melissa, or whether it's the new ones that she's training to take over music, we are pleased to hear Christ praised in song. But I have to ask, is that enough? Music is a form of worship. And it's not over when the song leader sits down. It's not over when the pianist gets up from the bench. Is it enough for us to come to church and read the words on the screen and sing? Is that all there is to worship? I have a friend who lived his life for music. All that he ever wanted to be was a worship leader in a church. And if you'll excuse me just a minute, I don't like the term worship leader for the song leader. Um, I don't want to be selfish, but I believe that the worship leader in the church is the pastor. That This is what I do. But that be as it may, this, this young man wanted to be a worship leader. And he was a very, he, he was an immensely talented young man. And he actually did make his way into some very large churches and became a worship leader. But unfortunately, his life didn't match worship. On Saturdays, he would go out and have a few drinks with friends. He would go to places where Christians shouldn't go and he would do things Christians shouldn't do. He would be with people that Christians ought not to be with. And in one church, he led music that in a church that didn't even preach the gospel of Christ. And yet, he had the title of worship leader. 
Is there something wrong with that picture? I mean, how, how, do we, how do we honor God? How do we adore God? Can we gather to sing and tell God how much we love Him as we sing and yet our hearts are far from Him? Does God really consider that to be worship? Jesus criticized the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in their worship. He said, ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Worship is an attitude of the heart. You can't worship and at the same time dishonor Christ with your life. But there are some people who, who come into church with all the junk that they've done through the week and they come here and they sing with unrepentant hearts. And we truly do need that confessional pastoral prayer that we have every week. But sometimes I wonder, is that period of prayer long enough? Are, are there too many sins to confess in such a short amount of time? And then I wonder how many stand for that, that time of silence and you have a totally blank mind. Don't even think about what you've done. You, it, the church goes silent and you don't really honestly think about how close you are to God and whether you can continue in the service to worship Him in spirit and in truth. The command is to worship. And so we must find those areas of the Lord's work that cause us to praise Him. Come before His presence with singing. That's what the Word of God says. And we come with our singing and our praise of God because of the gospel and what it did for us. We rejoice in the benefits that, that God gives, the present blessings that He pours into our life every day. We rejoice in the return of Christ and the hope that He gives us of tomorrow. And there's another song that we sing, 10,000 Reasons. And I'll tell you, there are 10,000 and 10,000 more reasons to rejoice when we think how the Lord loads us with benefits. But that rejoicing is also predicated upon preparation. How are our hearts prepared for worship when we come to church? Well, let me give you three critical areas of preparation. The first is that acceptable worship is outward we're all members of the same body we're unified in one lord one faith and one baptism there's one god and father of all as paul says in ephesians 4 we're not prepared for worship unless our fellowship with each other in this body is right we're not prepared unless we treat others in the way the lord treats us now, if you look in our text, if you go back to verse 15, we discussed this as we talked about fellowship. He said, see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Now, here Paul says, it's, it's not good enough for you to just stop hurting people. The verse says more than just don't do evil to each other, but it goes on there from the negative to positive activity where he says, help them, treat all people well, especially those that are in your church. Do you know what Jesus commanded concerning that fellow that shouted obscenities out here as he passed by and we're standing in the parking lot? Jesus said, but I say unto you which hear, love your enemies, do good to them that hate you. Bless them that what? Curse you. And that would be on the screen if we were showing it. But it, it says, those that curse you, pray for them, which despitefully use you. 
Now that's hard. It's hard. But if you learn to do it for your enemies, how much more can you do that for your friends? How much more can you do that for those who are in the same body of the Lord Jesus Christ in the church? If you'll listen to what Paul wrote in Romans 14, 11, he says, For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Now, lifting that verse out and you reading, you'd say, what does that have to do with what you're talking about? Well, the important thing is the context of it. Why do I use this verse? Because of the context. Paul was talking about the treatment of weaker brothers. And he said, just like we read today in 1 Corinthians, don't put a stumbling block in the way of other people. Instead, you need to do what? Bow your knee to the Lord. In other words, he's saying to Christians, suck it in, take it up. If you have to bear with a weaker brother, then do that. Help them. Bear with weaker people. And the same thought is expressed in our text in verse number 14. He says, comfort the feeble-minded and support the weak. Now, isn't it interesting that Paul set that parameter just before getting into the subject of worship? And so he's telling us, you can't worship if your attitude is not right towards your brother. And then he went on in Romans 14, 18 to say, for he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God. And approved of men. You see that? When you get this right. When you get the outward right. When fellowship is right. You are acceptable to God. Your worship is acceptable. And so your worship begins. Before you ever enter the building. Your worship begins with the preparation. That you make on the other side of that curtain. How have you treated others? What's your attitude towards others? And. If you're in a fight with another person in the church, you can't come into the assembly and praise and rejoice and worship. If you haven't shown the mind of Christ out there, how will you show it in here? Now, we're mostly concerned with corporate worship, but I will tell you that corporate worship is prepared by your private worship. What are you doing every day? Worship is not confined to a place. These four walls, when you enter here, this doesn't automatically generate worship. We don't manufacture worship in here. The heart has to be prepared and your heart will be, will be hypocritical in here if it's not honest out there. And then as we read scripture, we, we learn that there are other ways outwardly that we worship and are prepared for worship. Evangelism is one of those ways. Care and concern for others about whether they believe in Jesus Christ. Paul said, follow that which is good among yourselves and to all people. And what is the highest good that you can do for people outside of this church? Some people think, well, it's serving at a homeless shelter. Other, others have a community, other community services in mind. That's the best that we can do for people out in the world. No, that's not the best. The best you can do is give them the gospel of Christ. But you know the problem with most Christians? Most of the time we think, I don't know, I don't know. I'm bothering people. I bother them if I tell them about Jesus. We intrude when we witness. And how many times have I heard this, that people say, oh, my faith is a private matter. Have you heard people say that? Faith is a private matter, so I really can't talk about my faith. Can you imagine how much work Paul would get done for Christ if he said, I'm sorry, fellas, my, my, my faith is a private matter. 
if his faith remained private, how many people do you think would have been one to the Lord? How many churches do you think he'd start if his faith was private? So what did Paul do? He intruded. He stirred up trouble with the gospel, didn't he? He was run out of town in most places because people didn't want to hear it. And maybe you didn't notice this, but our God is public. Didn't he say he wants to be known and worshipped everywhere? And that's why Jesus said, pray that the kingdom will come. Why? Because God's kingdom will be extensive over the whole earth. So everybody will worship God. That's what he wants from us. Another outward expression is sacrifice. Uh, sacrifice is always associated with worship. Thank God we're not required to bring an animal sacrifice. But we are still required to sacrifice. Sacrifice is an indication of worship. The Old Testament says, I will freely sacrifice unto thee. I will praise thy name, O Lord, for it is good. Now, in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews took that verse and incorporated it into New Testament worship. And in Hebrews, it says, by him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name, but to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Can you see Paul's consistency with scripture in our text? He said, in everything, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ concerning you. What is the sacrifice of praise? Well, it's those same areas that we rejoice, the gospel, the blessings, the benefits, the hope that we have in Christ. And then there is one more outward expression that I, I don't want you to miss. What about giving? Bringing your tithes and offerings to the Lord is an act of worship. If you miss that and you don't do it, you haven't completed your worship. Are you prepared for worship if you haven't made out the check? Now, according to God's word, how will you sing? How you rejoice? How will you do that unless you are careful to give back to God who so richly blesses you? So acceptable worship is outward. Then secondly, acceptable worship is inward. Acceptable worship is connected to your behavior. That's, thus it does manifest itself outwardly. But what is it that rules the behavior? Doesn't that start with your heart? I mean, isn't there something that goes on inside that dictates what you are outwardly? Jesus said that your heart will determine the kind of person you are. And the evidence of what is in your heart will show up in your behavior. We ought not to think that many that have made professions of faith and say that they're saved are saved if it never shows up in their behavior. I preached on this subject in a church a few years ago. I said that true faith in Christ will lead to confession of sin and a life lived in rejection of sin. I said a true Christian, and I'm reading scripture, of course, a true Christian can't continue to live in sin. And so I said, don't count people Christians if they don't forsake their sin. Well, there was a man in the church who was listening to the sermon, and he was a preacher. After church, he caught me on the way out, and he protested what I said. See, this man had a daughter who, years ago, when she was young, had made a profession of faith. But then for years, this same daughter had lived as a lesbian. And so his 
that her father didn't like the implications of what I said. But I stand by that. And I don't care if it's my children, my relatives, my friends, your friends, your children, or who it is. The profession is false if they live in sin and they don't repent. There must be evidence. And there may very well be people that leave the church and don't come back because the profession wasn't good. That's exactly what the Apostle John said in 1 John. He said, they go out from us because they were never with us. And he wrote in 1 John, believers cannot habitually sin. They just can't do it. And they can't worship. And they don't because they have no desire for it. Uh, person who says I'm a Christian and lives in sin has no desire for worship that's why they aren't here this is why the psalmist concluded who shall ascend into the holy hill of the Lord or who shall stand in his holy place he that hath clean hands and a pure heart and hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity nor sworn deceitfully he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of salvation who he says who is this that ascends to the temple to worship God in his holy place, those with a clean heart, those who are inwardly holy, they are the ones that go up. They are the ones that walk with God. They don't stay down. And so you find them in the worship of God their Savior. Let me show you another connection. All of this is interwoven. Paul combined doing good to others in point A with a clean heart in point B. This is in the third chapter of 1 Thessalonians. And the Lord make you to increase and to abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Is that consistent? He wraps it all together. How will you rejoice? How, how will you praise? Except... That you do good to each other and you do it with a holy heart. It's outward and it's inward. Worship is outward and inward. Then there's another way that he puts it together. Godliness and holiness and praises and prayer are put together. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Did you come today to worship? Not unless your heart is right. Not until you're holy. Not until you walk with God. Not until you are acceptable will you worship God. Do you see anything in this that says that worship must be acceptable to you? It's all about being acceptable to God. And you won't worship Him until you're acceptable to Him. And so in prayer, praise, have the welfare of others in your heart. That's good and acceptable to God. Now finally, and most importantly, acceptable worship is upward. What is this except that God is our focus? God is central. He saves us for this to worship Him. We live to worship Him. Christ came to this earth to make the Father known so that we would worship Him. John seventeen three, and this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. And so it's through Jesus Christ that we look upward to see God. 
And we will never worship the one true living God without faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only way we can worship. How can you worship God except you know him? And Jesus said, this is the way you know the true God. Now let me very quickly give you some thoughts about focusing on God. Isaiah wrote, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Perfect peace, he says, nothing that troubles us. Now these Thessalonian Christians, as I mentioned earlier, were in many trials. No doubt they thought Paul asked the impossible. How will this little band of brothers that are relentlessly persecuted, how will they rejoice? And Paul's own life was an example of how it can be done. He wrote to the Corinthians and he talked about the constant distress of, of beatings and stoning, of shipwrecks and robbers. And, and then he adds to it the burden of caring for so many churches that, that are in constant need of correction. How did he expect them to rejoice? And the answer always comes back the same. The way that you rejoice is to always keep your focus on God. You can't let what goes on around you rule you. You may not be happy with your troubles, but happiness is not the subject. Your troubles are not the subject. The subject is God. And there's never any trouble with God. There's always perfect peace with God. Those that are miserable with their troubles don't think on God. We have difficulty rejoicing when the focus is off. So let me give you a list of suggestions about focus. A commentator listed these and I thought they were good enough to help you. If you have difficulty rejoicing, refer to this list. In what things do you rejoice in your focus of Christ? Well, first you rejoice in the Lord himself. Philippians 3 verse 1, finally my brethren rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. To me indeed is not grievous, but for you it's safe. Philippians 4 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Secondly, rejoice in the incarnation. Luke 2, and the angel said unto them, fear not, for behold I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For Unto you is born this day in the city of David, David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. So rejoice that God's Son became man to die for you. Number three, rejoice in the Lord's power. Luke 19, 37. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Fourthly, rejoice in the Lord's presence. John 16, and ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again. And your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. So rejoice because Christ promised that he would always be with you. Fifthly, rejoice in your salvation in the Lord. Isaiah 61 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with his robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with, her, with ornaments. And a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. Rejoice. Because he traded his robes for yours. Rejoice. Sixthly. Because your name is written in heaven. 
Luke 10, notwithstanding in this rejoice, not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Seventhly, rejoice in your hope of the glory of God. Romans 5, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then number eight, rejoice in your eternal rewards. Luke 6, rejoice ye in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the like manner did your fathers under the prophets. Well, I could go on and on. If our focus is on God, there is just so much for us to rejoice. You can't run out of things to rejoice in when you think of God. So I couldn't sum it up better than this. Psalm 31 verse 7. I will be glad and rejoice in thy mercy. For thou hast considered my trouble. Thou hast known my soul in adversities. You can rejoice because God knows all about you. Why do you need to think about your troubles when God is thinking about them? Both of you don't need to think about them. God has it. God takes care of it. He's got your back. Rejoice in his abundant mercies. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more, stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. The command from the Holy Spirit of God is rejoice evermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the message of rejoicing and how things will change for us. How our, how our spirits will be lifted, how our attitudes will change if we remember so many benefits that you've given us, so many things that you've done, your incarnation, you died for us, your presence is with us, you reward us, just so many things. We go on and on and on to think about the gracious benefits that you've given. So Lord, help us to keep our minds focused on that. And then to remember, we must be acceptable to you in order to worship you acceptably. Lord, we pray for our lives, for our testimonies, for what we are in Christ. And Lord, help us to make this church a place of rejoicing in our God and Savior. Jesus Christ. Speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.